Welcome to the From Point A podcast. I'm your host, Brian Corbett. This is a show about government officials transitioning in and out of government. It's not about politics, policy, or regulation. This is a conversation focused on careers, the decisions we make and didn't make, and the consequences that we have to deal with. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Our guest today is Bob Steele, who is the current CEO of Perella Weinberg Partners. Bob has had a truly amazing career in the private sector and in government. Bob was a longtime banker at Goldman Sachs before joining the Treasury Department under President Bush in 2006. He served as the Undersecretary for Domestic Finance. After leaving Treasury, Bob was the CEO of Wachovia, and then he was the Deputy Mayor of New York City. So, Bob, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. We're here in the headquarters of Perella Weinberg in the, the famous General Motors building in New York. So thank you for welcoming me. It's great um, to be here, and um, I'm excited to do this podcast with you. It's good to see you, Brian. Great. Um, before we talk about Perella and your time at Treasury, I want to go way back to Durham, North Carolina. Uh, I know this is an important time of year for you as the Duke Blue Devils are getting ready for once again, another national championship run, but you actually have a very unique connection to Duke. Not only were you a grad, but you grew up in Durham where Duke's located. So talk a little bit about growing up in Durham. Was it always preordained that you would go to Duke? Well, um, it's a great question, Brian. Um, both my parents went to Duke, and but they weren't from Durham. And what happened was my dad finished Duke in 1941. My mom was a year younger, and what it's hard to imagine today, but in 1941, the day after graduation, my father and all of his friends uh, joined the service. Uh, and so um, in June of 1941, my dad left Durham and went to the West Coast to join the Marines. Uh, and my mom, who was a junior, they were married that summer, and she stayed in Durham. And he was overseas for two or three years in the Pacific. And so while he was overseas, my mom finished at Duke and put down roots in Durham. And so my dad was from Teaneck, New Jersey, uh, but that ended up, Durham ended up being our home. And I grew up in Durham, uh, kind of in the shadow of Duke, and both my parents were Duke alums, so it had resonance, but that was the, the rather circuitous path of how I ended up in Durham. So after you graduated for Duke, um, you eventually went to Goldman Chicago office, but tell me about what you did immediately after you graduated. It looked like there were a couple of years before you started at Goldman. I had originally, Brian, wanted to go to law school uh, after I finished Duke in 1973, and my grades weren't good enough, so I didn't really have a lot of choices. So I decided to pivot towards business, and I started at the University of Chicago going to business school at night. And I had two jobs uh, um, at First Chicago and then another securities firm. And then on November 22nd, 1976, I joined Goldman Sachs in the Chicago office, which was pretty small then, wasn't a big office, maybe 30 or 40 people. And, and uh, a gentleman who had just joined two years before me uh, was a very impressive fellow uh, who's a couple years older than me, uh, Hank Paulson. What was your first impression when you met Secretary Paulson? He's a force period. He was a force in 1976, uh, and he's a force today. And, and, you know, Hank's motto was, if you see a problem, run toward it, uh, as opposed to from it. And Hank has always been a positive force, uh, engaging on hard issues uh, from the front foot. And that was my impression from day one. You were at Goldman for 30 years. And one of the things I'd be curious about is, uh, that's a long time to stay at one firm. How do you keep it interesting? How do you continue to add value to the institution? 
Well, you know, I think I have to be considered incredibly fortunate. Uh, I joined Goldman Sachs in November of 1976, and that was just at the time, Brian, Gus Levy had passed away, and John Whitehead and John Weinberg were, were the co-senior partners. That happened the same month I joined. And they really were visionaries. Uh, they were both uh, um, products of World War II. They'd served. They'd both been at Harvard Business School. And now they had the reins of the firm. And they really professionalized Goldman Sachs. And I was there for a ride that was really led by John Whitehead and John Weinberg, which was stupendous. And so the firm was growing. And so when I was at Goldman Sachs, we became an international firm. We added asset management. Uh, we changed in lots of ways. So that growth creates opportunities. So I didn't join Goldman Sachs and sit in one seat. I came to Goldman Sachs and sat in several seats in several locations. And that's what made it interesting. Every few years, I was in Chicago for a decade. I was in London for seven or eight years. I was in New York for more than a decade. So, so really uh, getting to do different things. And I started out in equity sales. Then I worked in equity capital markets, then I moved to management, and then had more leadership jobs. So really, it wasn't having one job, Brian. It was really the opportunity to keep growing with a firm that was doing new things. And Goldman definitely has a reputation, and it seems like a culture for challenging people by moving them to geography across business segments. You know, as you look back at your time at Goldman, what was the biggest skill or the, the most important professional development aspect that you've taken with you during the, the rest of your jobs? The, the job that gave me the jump was going to London, uh, where I wasn't an international guy. I was a middle-class kid from North Carolina who got his first passport when he was 30. And so when I'm 35, I moved to London to start an equity capital markets business. So that was the biggest career lift, uh, where it was a real jump. And it could have been that um, it wasn't a great job, but it turned out that um, the capital markets in Europe really advanced, that the, the Eurozone began to develop, and there were lots of privatizations. So uh, because of good fortune, we got in front of a lot of business. And so the job I went to work on in London became an exciting job and one that had lots of business attached to it. That's just good luck. That, I didn't make that happen. I was a taker of that perspective, not a maker of it. But I got a good seat, and it worked out well, and that was an advancing thing. I think the broader question you ask about skills, you know, I – I always felt that Goldman Sachs was fun because of the 360 perspective. I had leaders I respected. I had colleagues uh, that uh, I enjoyed working with, and I had young people that I thought I could always learn from. And so really, it was a wonderful culture. Your question kind of implies, I think there, there's really the attitude of you have to be skilled at, at your craft to a certain level. Uh, and at 30 years of Goldman Sachs, that you had respect for people who, who were good at their job. And that comes from hard work and uh, thinking and being prepared. And so that's required. And then I think the second aspect would be working well with other people. Um, the reality is, is the most important problems uh, generally are complex. So if a company or a family or an individual or a government has a complicated problem, has an important problem, usually it has complexity. If it were easy, then it just gets solved naturally. But complexity in my experience, uh, requires collaboration. And so I think that was the second aspect. So be skilled, be collaborative. And I think the third thing maybe I, I thought I learned was, was trying to be a pretty good communicator uh, um, and being able to describe things to people. Uh, and that comes from being a good listener and understanding 
what's the way in which people would be best able to receive information? You know, some people are, are, are better receiving things very direct, very specific, sh with a sharp point. Other people, you need to weave a story so they can kind of become involved in the idea. But what's communication skills? So I think it's having skills, being collaborative, and trying to learn to be a good communicator. One of the things you hear about Goldman as well is the, it has a culture where people spend time in public policy. There's a long history of, of Goldman executives going into government and coming out. Uh, after your 30 years at Goldman, uh, you retired from the firm and you went to teach at the Harvard Kennedy School. Well, I think at Goldman Sachs there was a real spirit of, um, of being involved in your community. And that both presented both in terms of not-for-profits and also government. But they were both of those threads were in the water at Goldman Sachs. During my time at Goldman Sachs, if I look at the leadership of Goldman Sachs, the senior partners, uh, there were um, two treasury secretaries, uh, one governor, one deputy secretary of defense, and two heads of the National Economic Council. And that's an amazing example of leadership that was just in the, the culture of the firm. And for me, uh, when I left Goldman Sachs, it was a really good time for me to leave. I'd been there for three decades and had an incredible experience. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And you know, Goldman Sachs is a pretty fast treadmill. I think it's hard to jump from the Goldman Sachs treadmill to the next treadmill. And the Kennedy School provided a transition period for me where uh, I taught um, with a, a fellow Goldman Sachs alum, and then Secretary Paulson called me and when he was going to be the secretary and invited me to come work with him, uh, which was a, another amazing privilege. Now, I assume you had stayed in touch with Secretary Paulson over the years, so when the call came, uh, it, it wasn't a shock. H how did that come about? You know, I've known Hank since... Um, 1976. We were um, fellow vice presidents at Goldman Sachs in Chicago. We were partners together, um, and then he was my boss at Goldman Sachs. So we have all kinds of relationships. Uh, we know our families well. We spend lots of time together. So it's a comfortable dynamic uh, um, just on a personal basis. I think Secretary Paulson was a little surprised that he ended up being the Secretary of the Treasury. Um, it wasn't what a burning ambition for him. But the duty called, and he decided to accept this responsibility. He called me the night before he had, uh, the, the day he agreed to do it with President Bush, and, and invited me to come work with him. And uh, I couldn't um, say yes fast enough. I thought the idea of um, having the privilege of working for our government, um, the opportunity to work with someone I respected, uh, and that's two people. That's both Secretary Tolson and President Bush. Um, that. Respect for the principle is a key aspect of a successful experience in public service, I believe. And so trooping down to Washington to, to, to work with them was, was really great. Obviously, a large chunk of, of your time in Treasury and Secretary Paulson's was consumed with managing the financial crisis, both identifying it coming and beginning to work on policy solutions to try and address it. Talk about your role in the crisis, uh, the office you were in, and, and how you and uh, the Secretary worked together on these issues. My title uh, was Undersecretary for Domestic Finance, and there were three undersecretaries. Two of them are really in the lanes of markets, uh, the Undersecretary for International, um, which was Dave McCormick, and the Undersecretary for Domestic Finance, which was me. So we were um, kind of in the, the, the um, mainstream of the issues. The first year we were there was 
there were some uh, presentation of challenges, but nothing like the full-throated crisis that we experienced later on. I think Secretary Paulson deserves a lot of credit where when he arrived, uh, his description to lots of people was that um, there was dry tender, where there was the potential for a recession or a slowdown. And so he did things that prepared us well. We had a good team. We had done tabletop exercises related to different crises. And I think most importantly, Secretary Paulson had, had really reactivated the President's Working Group. And as you know, the President's Working Group was set up by Ronald Reagan and consisted of the leaders uh, of uh, Treasury, the Fed, uh, um, uh, the SEC, and the CFTC. And so Secretary Paulson convened that group regularly in advance of the crisis. So when the crisis did come, those four leaders and other people that were in the room knew each other, worked well together, and, and that was really it. But uh, I think that you know the presentation of the crisis uh, um, really showed up, uh, first of all, in some um, markets, some instruments in some markets. The next presentation was really through institutions. And the final presentation was more of a, a, a systemic issue. But we didn't see when the first domino fell related to um, markets and instruments, we didn't instantly connect that it would be as important syst systemically as it turned out to be. But over that period, then it became clear, and then uh, we began to try to develop the tools to be able to be prepared. In terms of how you interacted with President Bush around this time, uh, I recall a story about a, a famous car ride that you took with the president. I think I'll get these days right is that it was um, on a um, Thursday that we first had an inclination that there were challenges uh, with Bear Stearns. And so we were um, doing our best to, under, first of all, understand the issues with Bear Stearns and then make a plan. It turned out that President Bush had had a long-standing invitation to speak at the Economic Club of New York that next day on Friday. Uh, and he was also doing a session uh, with the Wall Street Journal editorial board just before the lunch. So this was a fast-breaking issue of what was going on with Bear Stearns. And I was asked to ride with President Bush from Manhattan, uh, where his helicopter landed, in the car with him. Uh, up to the New York Hilton on Sixth uh, Avenue to brief him on what was going on with Bear Stearns uh, during the car ride. To be honest, you know, you have these things in life where they're just kind of a blur. Uh, I remember getting in the car and uh, sitting directly across from the president as we zoomed up the FDR, trying to explain to him this is what had happened, this is what our plan is, this is what we're going to be doing, so that he could be briefed should it come up in any Q&A and things like that. That's an amazing experience, and you don't get many of those in life. I mean, it's, that's really incredible. Uh, you spent several years at Treasury, then ultimately you decided it was, it was time to leave. Uh, you left to become the CEO of Wachovia. Uh, very curious about your pivot from government to the private sector there. You were dealing with the financial crisis on the inside. Now you're at a bank, and you're dealing with it in the private sector. How did you deal with that different perspective? Ultimately, you, you saved Wachovia and negotiated a sale to, to Wells Fargo, but sort of compare and contrast the, the, the different perspectives? Well, um, a couple comments. Uh, you know, I spent most of my life in the private sector, so in a way, uh, being at a bank uh, in the financial services industry was a bit uh, going home in some ways. So that wasn't as discomforting or uncomfortable as it might have been. 
You know, I, I think it was a disappointment in some ways because Wachovia had a very long tradition uh, of being an important bank uh, in the United States system of depository institutions. And when I arrived, I was really hopeful and excited about the prospect of growing and having Wachovia be successful. As the financial crisis unfolded, uh, and uh, as you point out, interestingly, I was not on the policy-making side, but on the policy-taking side, uh, it was clear that I think the policy makers in Washington and in New York felt that encouraging combinations of some of these larger banks that were weakened by the financial crisis was a good strategy. So the encouragement of Wachovia to look at other places to be aligned with might not have been what I would have wished, but I understand that policy perspective, and we were really part of that exercise. As you remember, we considered combining with Citibank and then ended up combining with Wells Fargo, and that was a good thing for Wachovia. Wachovia was a stronger institution by being part of something better, and I believe Wells Fargo was stronger because of the characteristics and assets of Wachovia. So, Bob, I want to ask you a couple of lightning round questions now. So, these are meant to be uh, quick hitters. So, your first job? I worked uh, in a clothing store after school two or three hours every day. A gap? No, just a local <laughs> store. Best summer job? Uh, working as a waiter on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Made a lot of money, worked at night. This was once in college, and I had to make 1500 bucks to go back to school. And so every year you'd fight to make 1500 bucks, and you'd have uh, single-dollar bills, quarters, all on your bed trying to figure out how you could save 1500 bucks. What was your first political experience? Um, probably the first real political experience was working for uh, Secretary Paulson. So after you uh, sold Wachovia, you spent a little time on the, the Wells board, and then you took a, a new job. You went to work as the deputy mayor of economic development for Mayor M Mike Bloomberg here in New York City. Talk about how you came across that opportunity and, and how that came about. And then I want to talk to you a little bit more about what you did uh, in that role. I had left Wachovia and was thinking about what to do next, and I did not know Mayor Bloomberg well. We had lots of friends in common. And Mayor Bloomberg had just been elected to his third term and wanted to reboot his team. And so he came to me and asked me to be the deputy mayor for economic development. And this was really a dream job. You got to work for someone who you really respected. And you got the tableau of working and learning all about New York City, which is the most interesting, exciting city in the world, and be part of the Bloomberg team. I have tons of respect for, for Mayor Bloomberg. You know, Brian, he's a triple threat. He's the only person I know that's really the equivalent of a gold medal winner in business, in philanthropy, and in public service. He was great to work for. I learned a lot, and it was a wonderful experience. It's so interesting that you had a senior-level policy position at the, in the federal government, and then you took the position with Mayor Bloomberg. What's the, what's the biggest difference in terms of the day-to-day, -day, the, the ability to make change, things like that, between the federal and the city? I actually believe that there is a this is a really interesting civics puzzle uh, or government puzzle. It, it, we're organized um, at the federal level so that the three branches have a tension that's relatively equal. And the idea of the founding fathers is not one of the branches can grab control from the others, and they all have the ability to balance each other. And that's the way it's designed. 
Um, state and local government are a little bit different. Uh, normally, when you read civics uh, philosophy, uh, that government philosophy, there's what they call the strong mayor, weak council. In some cases, you have weak mayor, strong city manager. It just depends. But, but the reality is that, Brian, that you need to have a stronger operating executive than in the federal government because you run a lot of things. You know, you have clean water. You pick up trash. You run schools. You pave roads. You organize parks. You have an operating job. And as a result, it, it, the executive activity or the executive function has more authority than it does in the federal government. Uh, and so I found that to be interesting. The mayor, in my opinion, has str more ability to do things on the front foot. And the legislative branch, in the city example, it's the city council, is not as strong relative to the mayor because of the things the mayor has to manage day to day. Put out fires, keep streets safe, uh, run buses, all these things are it's an operating job that have to happen like that. And so the organization is such that the mayor has more authority. And when you took this job, New York was dealing with the financial crisis, obviously the, the impact from the layoffs at the banks probably rippled through the city. What were your your key initiatives, what were you f were focused on in that immediate aftermath of the financial crisis when you took this job? Well, th there are a few things. Uh, one, I think you have to have a pro-business environment. Uh, you have to be balanced with regard to regulation and business. And that's not pro or con regulation, that's balance, um, where we can't overburden business uh, and we need to be welcoming of business and recognize that we need business to create jobs. There are 8.4, 8.5 million people in New York. There are 3.3 million people working. You know, how do we create a business and an economy that creates more jobs, growing jobs, and also continually elevating uh, the level of jobs that we have in our city? Um, so pro-business environment. One of the second things we thought about a lot was we were really a big believer in what I call the eds and meds, education and medicine. And they're more stable. They're not as cyclical as some business jobs. So the people that run Columbia or run NYU, and you know, New York has an amazing educational uh, network. So uh, there are about 550,000 post-secondary students in New York City. So we talk about college towns. We think Boston's a college town. New York has more post-secondary students than Boston has people. So uh, New York is a college town too. And so how do we keep that vibrant and things like that? The third thing we really tried hard to do was to think about innovation and change, and the mayor was so good at this. Here you have a, a mayor who's a leader who, who created a company himself from scratch uh, that's, uh, that combines and crosses the dual disciplines of financial services and technology, uh, and so he's a great leader with this, and he saw the future of technology and the importance of innovation. It's probably been interesting to see how they've played out over the years since you, you left the, the mayor's administration, but ultimately you did leave and you joined Prella Weinberg in 2014 as the CEO. What was your thinking around that transition from the mayor's office to your next step? I'm not sure it was as well organized as it might sound. I, I think that I knew I liked being busy and active and engaged. Uh, I was good friends with Peter Weinberg, who was a founder of the firm uh, Perella Weinberg. We've been partners together at Goldman Sachs and knew each other pretty well. So uh, the firm here was in a transition. And so when I was invited to have a, a senior position here, it seemed like a good thing to do. 
I was a little old for public companies, and so as a private company, this was an easier transition, and so it's been terrific. I think one of the interesting things about your career, Bob, is you worked for Secretary Paulson and for Mayor Bloomberg, two big personalities, hard drivers. Um, what do you think it was about each of them that made them so effective? And the second question is, what made you such a good partner for them? They're quite different. Secretary Paulson is a very driven, focused, tack a problem, just dives into a problem and is completely immersed by the issue. He became a wartime secretary, to use an image, where the second year of my time with Secretary Paulson was the financial crisis, and, and you're the equivalent of a wartime leader. And that's a different skill than a peacetime leader. Uh, I think that the country was exceedingly fortunate that Secretary Paulson was in his chair and Chairman Bernanke was in his chair, and they're also very fortunate that the two of them worked well and in an egoless way to do what was best. So you had the Federal Reserve Board and the Treasury, Department of Treasury, working together. didn't have to be that way, and if you think about it, the skill set of both of these, you have an expert, an academic expert on the Depression, and who'd studied it his whole academic career, and Chairman Bernanke, and Secretary Paulson, who understands markets and spent decades and decades inside Goldman Sachs um, looking at challenging issues. So, uh, but with Secretary Paulson, it was really intense focus. Mayor Bloomberg is different. Um, his job of managing the city and the government was different. Uh, New York City has about 340,000 employees, uh, people that work for the city. So it's a managerial job, and there are about 50 agencies that run the, the city. So watching Mayor Bloomberg uh, figure out the right, right way to develop managerial skills to manage over this span was incredible. And his ability to manage at scale was really inspiring. And he did it in a very delegating fashion where his goal was to hire really good people, give them a lot of authority, tell them what his key principles were, and let them get after it. And he would be the opposite of a micromanager. And he, was, he really attracted people, I believe, that were inspired and wanted to work with him. As you've made these transitions over time, you, you've talked to a lot of people and have gotten a lot of advice about career decisions. You know, as you're mentoring people now, what's some of the advice that you give people who come to you to talk about decisions they're confronting? I'm not sure I'm a very good advice giver. Uh, no one in my family asked me what I think about anything. So, uh, uh, you know, I think it's um, uh, some of the things are you need to do things you enjoy. Uh, uh, work should be about do you enjoy the work? Do you enjoy the people and the place you work? And are you rewarded fairly? A lot of people have the reward first, and it should be last. Uh, do you like the actual work? Uh, is it fun? Uh, is it interesting to you? Are you proud of where you work? so that you can look people in the eye and say, this is where I work, and, and feel good about it. Uh, and then uh, it'll all be great. How about any guidance as people transition in and out of government? Because oftentimes it can be hard for people to translate skills they've developed in the government to the private sector. And, and you've not only done this yourself, but you have a, a lot of former colleagues that have, I'm sure, sought your counsel in this area. Well, the, I have a little phrase I use where the skill set's the same, but the mindset's different. And what I mean by that, Brian, is analyzing an issue, understanding the best path, thinking about the best policy. That, that's a skill that's pretty comparable between business and government. 
I think the difference is that in government, uh, authority is quite distributed. So you have to be very well aware of what uh, larger groups of people think. Business authority is concentrated uh, at the top. Uh, the CEO uh, makes a decision and the whole organization goes left or goes right per the CEO. In government, you need to bring people along and that has two characteristics that are different. It requires more compromise and it means you move more slowly and you have to accept that. And if you don't, if you say, well, you know, I'm not, I don't want to compromise, I think that's just required and it takes longer to develop uh, a consensus at this path that we're, you don't just say we're going left, you say, well, what do you think about going left? How about if we go left a little bit and see how that goes and then maybe we can go left a little bit more. You have always throughout your career had a very demanding day job, but you've also found time to focus on other interests. You have three daughters, uh, busy family. You know, how have you over time found the right balance between work, family, philanthropy? Uh, do you have any daily routines you go through to, to sort of maximize efficiency and help you be more effective? Talk about your kind of day-to-day and how you, you strike this balance. Having the dimensions of taking care of yourself first because if you're not healthy physically emotionally then you can't help anyone else and you've got to figure that out for yourself how much rest how much exercise how much time for hobbies but you have to feel good about yourself then comes family and then you have work and other interests and I've always found they all go together and I think I'm better at all four if I'm doing all four then you get to the issue of how do you allocate time. And I think, that, I think that's a bit uh, um, cyclical. Uh, there are periods in your life where your family will be more demanding. And there are periods in your life when your work might be more demanding. And getting those balances right uh, is really the key issue. But I find all four, taking care of yourself, being mindful of your family, doing a good job at work, and then having other interests, all four are complementary. And I wouldn't want to give up any of them. But it is a... Uh, getting the recipe right uh, among the four at any time is always a tension and a challenge, and it shifts. It's not the constant. One of the issues I'd be interested in your view on is how CEOs balance the immediate versus the important. As I see it at my company, we're, the, the CEOs are constantly having to deal with sort of the immediate fire of the day while also being strategic and trying to push the organization and uh, the right direction over the long term. That, that's not easy to strike that balance because your time could get sucked into just the fire of the day. How do you deal with that? I think that, um, that that is the tension. My bet is that almost all of us spend too much time on the fire of the day and not enough on the longer term perspective. So my tension and I, my work colleagues try to help me. I try to audit it myself, but I think it's also true in your life. Uh, um, it's not just a work issue. It's, um, you know, how do you think about the longer-term issues in your life that you're balancing also, whether it's education or spiritual sustenance or what are the things that that are longer-term, longer-lived issues that it's kind of easy to be less attentive to. Being well-read isn't going to change this afternoon. Reading things that are different than what you believe isn't going to change tomorrow. But if you are well-read and you're reading things that are different than what you know that add to your knowledge, then I'm convinced that over time those will be skills, assets that you'll want to have. But they're not required for today. How do you do that? 
we talked a little bit about uh, the role philanthropy plays in your life, and I know you've been very active with Duke, with Aspen, with, with the Lincoln Center, a number of hospitals here in the New York area. But one of the things I thought was very interesting is that you've actually spent time uh, helping to develop a movie about a, uh, a racial situation in, in North Carolina. I, I think it was called Blood Done Sign My Name, where you were an executive producer and helped put together the director with the, the author of that book. How, how'd you get into that? And is that something that over time you, you maybe like to do more of? Well, I'm not sure. I think that was a one-off. I was born in a segregated life, a segregated world. And then over my schooling, it became, began to become an integrated world. So that's the dynamic. Uh, Tim Tyson wrote a book about that. And, and I read the book and it had resonance for me. I have a friend who's a movie producer, uh, uh, Jeb Stewart. He's quite successful. He did Die Hard. So I read the book and I referred it to Jeb. Uh, he found that it had resonance for him too, so we made the film. And that was how it was birthed. Last question, when we sit down in five years from now and have the, the sequel to this conversation, what will have changed for Bob Steele? Uh, will you have written a book? Would you have maybe gone back into government? Will Coach K have retired in five years? Well, the, the last question is the most important. Um, I hope not. You know, uh, Coach K can keep winning and, um, <laughs> and, and doing what he's doing, you know. So for me, uh, um, you know, uh, I think the goal is to wear out, not rust out, so I'll be busy and I won't write a book. And, um, you know, government service has been a, an amazing privilege and honor. Um, if there was another chance to, to work for um, our country or in other government or, or whatever, I'd be honored to serve, but it, it's not something I'm counting on today. Well, Bob, thank you very much for your time. You've been very generous. Thanks for listening. The show is produced by Sarah Wengauer.